Welcome to the Grandis Island podcast about birds. We want to be very quiet to be able to see the many types of birds that inhabit Grandis Island. We are going to tiptoe down the path with Dr. Celia Lewis, an ornithologist who has a passion for coastal birds. That's the catbird calling. That was a robin. That's the robin. doesn't look like much from here, but there's a little kind of brown spot. just looks like dead leaves, maybe. And if you go and look that up in a book, in fact, I might have it in my book, they weave a hanging basket. So the, the northern oriole nest is up there, and it's a hanging basket. I'm going to zoom in on the nest. Right up in there, and they weave a hanging basket. And this is an active nest. I saw the female fly in. As we reached the island, we turned our attention to the nearby trees. Looking closely, we found a red-winged blackbird. That's a male. There's a male sitting on those Oh, right there. Shrubs over there. You can really see the red on the wing. Even from here. If you zoom in, I'll get in a minute. Oh, here comes a green heron. A what heron? Green heron. Flying back. And what I was just about to say is that because Granis Island is surrounded by this marsh, you might also be interested in some of the marsh birds, like the green heron which would feed on the fiddler crabs and um, some of the little fish that you would find in these um, ditches that we've been crossing. And also, I think last time we talked about the salt marsh sharp-tailed sparrow and seaside sparrow, which would use the marshes. And those are two species that are um, becoming more rare. So it might be interesting to look at and the red-winged blackbird is also a marsh bird that would be, that we know is here in the area. Um, and the osprey, of course, has its nest right next to Granite's Island. So this is an osprey platform that uh, different organizations put up these platforms for osprey to nest on. Normally they would nest on tree trunks that would be left standing, but there aren't so many of those around. So they find that if they build these platforms, the osprey will use them. And they've been able to increase the number of osprey nesting along the river by doing that. It's been very successful. And you can see that, that round metal sheath that goes around it. That's to keep animals like raccoons from climbing up and getting to the eggs to have a perch nearby that they can use when they're not on the nest. 
have the mute swans, um, black duck, double-crested cormorant. So what's neat about this project is that you have some land birds, some marsh birds, and some water birds that you could look into. Those little noises. It's not really a song. And it's similar to the mockingbird. It sometimes imitates other birds. It's called a mimic. It's called a gray catbird. Next, we'll talk to naturalist Lucien Buffard about the kinds of birds here at Granis Island. I have a list when I was at Quinnipiac Nature Preserve. I saw probably, it looks like, about 50 species of birds while I was there. I saw, um, let's see here, I saw American Goldfinch, uh, Osprey, Cedar Waxwing, American Robin, Chimney Swifts, which fly about 6,000 miles as well to be able to get to this part of the world. So when the caterpillars start appearing on the trees, so do the migratory birds appear and eat the caterpillars. So there are songbirds there. Uh, there will be the osprey that will perch on Granis Island overlooking the Quinnipiac River, surveying for uh, fish in order to pick up and eat on the wing. Uh, and other birds that will live there will be um, birds called the flicker. The flicker will live there. There will be yellow warbler that lives there. The sharp-tailed sparrow uh, is maybe one bird that you'll want to investigate. The, the state is doing uh, a, a population survey on the sharp-tailed sparrow and uh, that bird is um, uh, being investigated for its status. So how many birds are left in the wild? Um, where do they live? Um, and they're tagging them on the legs and then they're that when they migrate south for the winter, they'll come back and they'll look at how many birds return to the same area. Sparrow that nests in the paytons in the Spartina that times its breeding cycle with the uh, with the high tides. That this grass needs to be submerged, covered with salt water once a month. So they have timed their breeding so that they can build a nest lay eggs, incubate the eggs, and fledge the young, hopefully within a month between those high tides. Because if they don't, if they're not able to do that, it's possible that their nests would get flooded. But that's been an evolutionary process of adapting to nesting in salt marshes. The, the birds that nest here nest only in um, the spring and summer too cold to nest here in the winter. Well, since we've been out here, I think the fastest bird we've seen is the morning dove, which flies very fast. You know, you just have to go out in the field and when you hear birds, track them down. And something about being able to see them making the calls helps you to learn them more quickly. The shape and the size and the color and the call and also the habitat 
Those all can give you clues as to what kind of bird you're seeing. Also, the way it flies. We talked to Fox Running, the Quinnipiac medicine man, about the native birds that were on the island when his tribe lived there. Our turkey feathers. And the white ones came from a, a swan. Now the swans that you have here now, that you see in the local ponds and lakes, are not the swans that originally were here in this country. Uh, the only place that you'll see them now is out in the west. They're called mute swans. The ones that we have uh, here along the eastern seaboard are an import from Europe. The mute swans are very territorial and aggressive when they nest and when they lay their eggs. And what they tend to do is keep the other water birds, like ducks, from being able to nest in that area. So they limit the habitat for other native um, water birds. Invasive species have gotten here um, from foreign parts of the world by transport. And a lot of places where you'll find invasive species being introduced are ports where ships will dock or planes will land. And so what happens is um, visitors may not clean off their boots when they get back from some other part of the world. Or they will um, drop a particular um, crate of uh, birds that were captured to be able to be held in captivity. There's one particular kind of bird that uh, is called the monk parakeet. And the monk parakeet uh, lives all in Connecticut shoreline in New York. And that, that, crate, that crate of birds was dropped in New York port in the early 80s. And now they're extending all over um, the Northeast. There's another, do you guys know the European starling? Well, it's the it's European starling. There's a particular play that Shakespeare wrote in Central Park. They put this play on in the early 1800s. And so when Shakespeare did, when they did the play in Central Park, they released the birds um, as part of the, 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 the act or the play itself. And then these starlings colonized uh, Central Park. And then before the next 25 years was up, they were all the way out to California. There are woodpeckers that will visit the island and those woodpeckers will make a make a make a cavity in a tree and so um, these woodpeckers they provide homes for other animals for instance when they make that cavity and then they use it for nesting and then they leave that cavity uh, they're it's no longer in use anymore so when the following year comes another animal like a screech owl, which is an owl that's only maybe eight inches tall. You've seen a screech owl? Good. So a screech owl will use that hole to be able to rear its young in. And those woodpeckers, in, in the larger context of the study of nature or the study of life, biology, those woodpeckers are called keystone species. And in an archway that is made out of stone, there's one stone at the top that is 
that is holding up all those other stones from falling in. And so those other stones are dependent on that one keystone in order to hold their environment and their habitat together. And so that woodpecker is known as a keystone species. Without that woodpecker, those holes would not be available to things like flying squirrels and screech owls to provide nesting habitats in. When an organism lives on an island like that, they're going to need to find their food in a larger area. So they're going to be birds that are going to nest in the trees, that are going to catch flies over the water. There's a whole group of birds called the flycatchers, and they will make their nests in trees close to water, and they'll swoop out over the water, catch insects, and then return to the nest to feed their young, etc. When I was there, um, I saw songbirds that have flown 6,000 miles in order to get here from Central and South America. Red knots are shorebirds that would feed along, maybe along the edge of the river, though um, they're not really found too commonly along this kind of water's edge. Usually they like more sandy um, areas. They nest in the subarctic region. So that's way up in Canada. And they migrate all the way down to the tip of South America. And so they have a very long migration. And they migrate, a lot of them migrate down the coast of the Atlantic, um, the Atlantic coast, the eastern seaboard. And one of their major stops is in Delaware Bay. And Delaware Bay happens to be where um, horseshoe crabs come in and lay their eggs on the beaches there by the hundreds of thousands. And the red knot has timed its migration to um, make their stopover in Delaware Bay just as the horseshoe crabs are laying all the eggs. And then they feast on these eggs. They don't eat them all. Um, there are plenty left so that the horseshoe crabs can keep reproducing. But that's a critical stopover for the red knots because they make only one or two stops before they fly all the way down to the tip of South America. And the problem right now is that um, fishermen have been harvesting horseshoe crabs um, in huge numbers. And so their numbers have dropped. So there aren't as many bird, uh, horseshoe crabs laying eggs. And the red knot is not able to, um, to eat enough, to gain enough weight to continue its um, migratory back up north. Actually, it's, they stop in the spring, um, in May, so they can make the rest of their flight up to northern Canada to nest. And so many people in the conservation movement are trying to protect um, the horseshoe crabs from being harvested so that the red knots will be able to have enough to eat. Otherwise, they don't make it to their nesting grounds 
so the numbers of red knots have declined very rapidly in the past decade. So there are different habitats here, and because of that, you have a big variety of birds that you can find here. Because you have the marsh, because you have the shrubland and the trees, and you have the river. So, um, keeping, keeping these habitats healthy, means that you know you'll have there are a lot of birds that people should be able to see here.